whatever group and make it 18 to 64, I will come and join you. Thank you very much. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to do it in two parts. I'm going to just say how I became an Open Doors supporter and then we're going to have a song of worship and then I'm going to preach from that passage of 1 Corinthians. The story goes back to the 1960s. I go, was brought up in North Staffordshire and I'm a stamp collector. Anybody else a stamp collector? A few? Good, good to see you. I've still got my stamp collection. And as a stamp collector, I learned so much about history and geography, I became fascinated with two countries in particular, China and Albania. I said to my mum and dad, I'm going to go there one day. They said, no, you're not. I said, what do you mean you can't stop me if I want to go there? I said, yes, they can. They're both closed countries. The borders are completely closed. But I became fascinated with these closed countries. And even as a teenager, I became interested in the persecuted church. I read God Smuggler and God Smuggler to China by Brother Andrew, who, as you know, founded Open Doors. And I read Richard Vermbrandt, Geoffrey Bull and many, many others. And I became, even as a teenager, a supporter of the persecuted church, praying for them. In 1976, Jan and I were married and we were involved with youth work in Stone in Staffordshire. And one weekend in 1985, we took the young people to Cloverley Hall for a weekend away. That's in Shropshire near Market Drayton. And amazingly, there was another group staying there, I think it was OM, who were praying for Albania. So I went to one of their early morning prayer meetings. Move the clock forward, 1986, Having joined the Daily Mirror training scheme in 1972, I knew then there was no chance with journalists on my passport of going to those countries. Anyway, 1986, I was editor at the Leak Post in North Staffordshire, and China was just opening up, as you may recall. And the Newspaper Society had an invitation from the All China Journalists Association, wanted four regional editors to go to the first ever exchange with China. So I rang them up and said, put my name down. I then rang my wife and said, I know we have holidays together, but this time it's different. Anyway, it's work, really. Of course, she let me go. And I spoke to the owner of the company. He said, how you spend your holidays is up to you. So I made it to China. Fascinating time in 1986 for two and a half weeks. Move the clock forward to 2008. I had my best ever year as a journalist. In January 2006, sorry, in January 2008, I was editor of the Shrewsbury Chronicle, the fourth oldest weekly paper in the country. And uh, in January, we had our highest ever circulation for 25 years, 19,000 copies sold a week. In May 2008, I was awarded the MBE for services to journalism and charity. In December 2008, we voted the third best weekly paid-for paper in the country. February 2009, I was made redundant. <laughs> it's a cynical world of where dog eats dog journalism, and the company were trying to turn the fourth oldest weekly paid-for paper into a free 
And you might think I'm a bit of a quiet, shrinking violet. But I took the directors on. I was going to go down with my ship all guns blazing. The end was brutal. I was out within two weeks and they tried to pay me the minimum payoff possible. But thanks to an employment specialist lawyer in London, I walked out with a huge payoff. So what do you do? I thought my career was over in my mid-50s. It wasn't, but that's another story. And uh, I thought, well, I've got good money. So I wrote to six missionary societies and said, if you want me to work for you for nothing, happy to do any writing, just give me a shout. Five said, no thanks, we don't need any writing. But the sixth said, yes, would you like to come out on a trip with us? This was now March 2008. In May 2000, uh, sorry, May 2009, we're going out on a trip to a country. I said, where are you going? They said, Albania. I said, count me in, I'll be there. And I went in May 2009, and met Bertie Dosti, an incredible Albanian. If you remember, Albania was like North Korea in the last century, completely closed to the rest of the world, and had one of the worst dictators of the 20th century. Enver Hoxha was his name. Enver Hoxha hated the West. He hated everything to do with it, Western music, Western hairstyles, Western fashion, Western music, Western radio, Western TV. The only one person he did like was a famous film star. Anybody remember his name? Norman Wisdom. That's good. Yes, he liked his, uh, his style. Anyway, Nor, um, Enver Hodger, anybody who showed any interest to the West was thrown out put in the fields in remote Albania to be re-educated. He particularly hated the church. When he assumed power after the Second World War, uh, Enver Hodja ruled the country with a rod of iron. All the, the uh, pastors and priests either fled, persecuted, or were martyred for their faith. Those who didn't escape, of the 335 Christian leaders who stayed, only 22 were alive when Enver Hodja died in 1986. He was so hated the Christian, Christian faith that he abolished RE in schools. He even abolished um, Christian names. If you were a good communist, you might call your son Marenglen, which is a variation for Marx, Engels and Lenin, just to give you an idea of the political flavor of the country. All the churches, 2,169, which were standing when he took over power after the Second World War, when he died in 1986, fewer than 80 were left standing. He closed them all. Those that he didn't knock down, he thought were useless as churches, he turned them into granaries and food stores. The cathedral at Skopje in Albania, he turned into a volleyball court. Oh, that was far more use. He even built a museum of atheism to make sure the people understood there is no God. And in 1968, Enver Hodja, the borders closed, no one could leave, no one could come in, made the announcement that hit the world headlines. I've abolished God. I've made Albania the world's first atheistic state. It galvanized a group of Christians in Rottenstall, Lancashire, to do something. And what they did was they managed to put together a 15-minute-a-week Christian broadcast, which they sent out to Monte Carlo, which was beamed into Albania 
by Transworld Radio for 23 years, not knowing if anyone was even listening to the program. You might say, well, how on earth did they find somebody who could translate it if there was nobody leaving and going to and from the country? There was at least one Albanian who were living in London. He worked for the BBC Foreign Service by day. Guess who he worked for at night? MI6, listening into the programmes. And his third job was to be paid a few pounds to translate this 15-minute-a-week radio broadcast. Interestingly, just before he died, Alfred Modoni became a Christian. I think he's the only radio presenter that's been converted by his own programme. So I met Bertie Dosti. Bertie Dosti was born in 1957, the perfect communist. His grandfather had fought with the partisans against the Germans and the Italians. Big tick there. His father was an army officer, another big tick. His brother was an army officer, and Bertie Dosti became an army officer as well. Such a good army officer, he won the third highest military medal in Albania. His speciality was signals and radio. Enver Hodja was paranoid that three countries were going to invade Albania, America, Russia, and Britain. And so he wanted to be given early warning if anybody's going to invade, in which case they go below into tunnels, just like the Viet Cong, and fight a guerrilla warfare. Bertie Dosti's job under Enver Hodja was to scan the world's airways and give early warning in case anyone was going to invade. Nobody, Bertie never found an enemy signal. As far as I know, there were no plans. Why would they bother invading this little country the size of Wales at the eastern end of the Mediterranean between Greece and um, uh, Yugoslavia? But one night, he caught one sentence of this radio program. The radio presenter said, if you want to find out more about God, listen tomorrow night. Bertie Dost, he said, don't be so ridiculous. Enver Hodges, our God. I'm a communist. Besides, if I'm caught listening to Western radio, I'll be put in prison. I'll certainly be thrown out of the army. I may be put to death. And my family for the next three generations, four generations will suffer because of my action. Next night, and Bertie cannot explain this even today, while he was there surrounded by the army officers, at least one in two was a government spy who reported everything back to Enver Hodja. Everybody gathered around there, and Bertie, as normal, put on his headset to scan the world's airwaves. Everybody around him thought he was listening to protect the country, but for 15 minutes he became God's secret listener and listened to that program. Bertie Dosti continued to listen in secretly for years. Then Enver Hodger died in 1986. Captain Dosti of the Albanian army became Pastor Dosti of a newly revived Albanian church which had been underground for more than 40 years, which has now grown from nothing to 100,000 in 20 years. It's an incredible story of the book of Acts come to life in our generation. I came back, and as a journalist, I said, that's a good book in that. So thanks to Lion Publishing of Oxford, they published God's Secret Listener, and uh, it's gone really well. And I decided it, 
July 2012, I persuaded the organizers of the Keswick Convention in the Lake District to invite Bertie Dosty to come over. And in front of 3,000 people at the Keswick Convention, a most moving occasion, Bertie Dosty told his story. At the end of the uh, meeting, so many people came up to Bertie and said, we have prayed for Albania for years. Tonight, we have seen our prayers answered. That one comment has encouraged me to commit myself to helping Open Doors and the persecuted church. That is my story. I will now go on in a few minutes to look at 1 Corinthians and preach on that passage. Thank you very much for part one. Can I just say, because the book God's Listener and Brother Andrew meant so much to me, I've got 12 of the books to give away afterwards, preferably to younger people, to those in the 18 to 75 group, whatever you are now at. <laughs> Come and see me afterwards and get a copy of that. If you want a simpler version, it's in a comic form as well. Come and see me afterwards. Thank you very much. I'll be over there. Oh, to you. Oh, right. Thank you. <coughs> At my age, I shouldn't fall. <laughs> you got the clicker? Has somebody got the... Brilliant. Thank you. Lovely. It's that one. That one. Let us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 16... Speak to us, encourage us, and be with each one of us that may take something out into the days and weeks ahead. We may be encouraged by what you're doing, O Lord, in this world. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. In three months' time, Jan and I are flying out to South Africa to see our son and daughter. Can everybody see? Yeah to see our son, daughter-in-law, and their two young children, our grandchildren. We obviously need to buy some South African rand. How easy it is now. I can walk up Worcester High Street, and I can choose whether to buy the currency at a bank, a travel agency, or a money exchange shop, and I don't even have to order it. I can get it over the counter. What a lot has changed in my lifetime, including banking and changing money. Some of you are too young to remember, but moving money in the 1950s and 1960s was so difficult then compared to today. Going back 60 years to my childhood, before the days of bank cards, credit cards, my parents had to go into the local branch in North Staffordshire to get them to write to their colleagues in Suffolk so that we and my dad particular, could go to the local branch on holiday in Southwold and actually get some money out. It really was quite a palaver. But imagine going back, instead of 60 years, 2,000 years to the time of Paul, when there was no phones, no telex, no emails, no checks, no banknotes, no bank cards, no credit cards, and no central banking services. That was the problem.
Paul faced in our passage this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He wanted the church in Corinth to send some money to help the church in Jerusalem, which had suffered terrible persecution and the members had been scattered all over Judea. The only way to get money from Corinth to Jerusalem in New Testament times was a journey of 1,892 miles, thank you, Google, was to send a person with the cash and with the very real danger that they could be robbed along the way. If you're worried I'm going to preach this morning on Christian giving, relax. I'm not going to talk about how much money we as Christians should give, but I do want to talk about why we give and what we should do. And the bigger reason why Paul wanted to help the church in Jerusalem. An issue very dear to his heart. Paul is using the collection he talked about in 1 Corinthians. To signal to both the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And the Gentiles in Greece. Who had come to faith in Jesus the Messiah. That they're all part of the same worldwide Christian family. Paul has already made arrangements for the churches in Turkey to help. Now he wants the Christians in Greece to do the same. He wants them all, not just the wealthy, to put something aside on the first day of each week because he wants them to share their resources with the poor and persecuted. This, by the way, is the first mention in the New Testament of a special significance being given to Sundays. Ironically, the point at question is taking up a collection. We don't know how they delivered the money, but we believe Paul took a group of Christians with him to Jerusalem for two reasons. Firstly, so there'd be no potential allegations of fraud and that Paul had kept some of the money for himself. And secondly, in a large group, each of them could hide some of the money on their clothing. It wasn't easy, as we found out if you read through the New Testament. There were delays, there were Christians losing heart and problems when they arrived in Jerusalem. So what can we draw from this passage for us today, which concerns about two totally different groups? Firstly, there were the Gentiles in the cultural center of Greece and the new Greek converts. Many of the Greeks were wealthy and enjoyed freedom of religion. Then there was the chosen Jewish race, steeped in history and with its religious past. But now they're being conquered by the Roman Empire, and barbarian Jerusalem was one of its outposts. Even worse, the Jewish Christians had been persecuted by the Jews themselves, and they'd been dispersed and were subsequently very poor. For Greece and Judah... I want to substitute Britain for Greece and Iraq for Judea. Two totally different nations and cultures. Firstly, Anglo-Saxon Britain. Fairly wealthy and comfortable with religious freedom and with a relatively new church of 1,400 years. Secondly, this persecuted Arabic Iraq. Struggling financially. Devastated by civil war, cities and homes destroyed by ISIS. 
Yet it has a proud history and culture and heritage. It's got one of the oldest monasteries in the world, or at least it did have, with its magnificent library full of Christian manuscripts and the Christian church dating back 1900 years to the first century when two of the 12 apostles, Thomas and Thaddeus, brought Christianity to Iraq. Sadly, Iraq has destroyed, the ISIS in Iraq has destroyed this monastery. Since the Iraqi wars in the last 27 years, thousands of Christians have fled Iraq. So much so, the commentators have feared the Christian church in the Middle East, and in particular Iraq, was doomed to oblivion and the pages of history within our lifetime. We watched with horror as we saw on our TV screens the hatred by ISIS towards Christians, their blind fury as they destroyed Christian churches, homes, archaeological sites and Christian heritage. What would Paul say to us if he was preaching here this morning, here in Worcester? He would say the same as he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We too are part of this worldwide church of Christ and we should help the poor and persecuted brothers and sisters. One of my jobs is that I'm a volunteer with Open Doors, a Christian charity who are helping the persecuted church worldwide, as you know. Many Christians and many people in the West have written off the Middle East church, saying there is no hope. Has God forgotten the Middle East church? No. Did God forget the Albanian church? No. And look what happened. Despite terrible persecution and devastation, there are signs of hope in Iraq. And an amazing story is developing, which I think we'll see more of in our lifetime. The church in Iraq and also Syria is being resurrected. Brave, now ISIS is defeated. Thousands of brave Christians, brave Iraqi Christians, are returning home. Despite worries that ISIS will return, having reformed under a new name, and despite concerns about what will happen if the Kurds win their campaign for an independent homeland in northern Iraq. Now, these brave Iraqi Christians are returning home and rebuilding their homes and their churches. Let me finish with two of the many, many stories of hope and then finish with the most inspiring picture of this year. 12-year-old Noah, Noah on the right there and his family fled their home in Karamalez, Iraq, which is 18 miles southeast of Mosul, to escape ISIS three years ago when he was nine years old. Of the 797 houses in Karamlez, 446 were completely burnt out and many, many of the churches damaged as well. Noah said, after the liberation in October 2016, we returned to find the Islamic State had completely burned our home. I was very sad when I saw it for the first time. I saw all my toys had been burnt in my room. But when I searched through the ashes, 
I found enough of my marbles to play with. He says, I feel the Spirit, Holy Spirit inside me telling me it's good to live in Carmelez again. And, um, and he is helping his family to rebuild their homes. And already Noah knows what he wants his new room to look like. He said, I want my bedroom to be colourful. Red, blue and green with pictures of FC Barcelona and Jesus on the wall. Open Doors supporters have helped repair 30 homes in Caramles with 20 more to be done next. But already 250 homes and residents have signed up for their homes to be helped to be rebuilt. Father Fabert, a church leader in Caramles, said, We start with the homes with the least amount of damage, are budgeted limited, and the government is not helping us. Is Father Thabet scared? Yes, of course I am, he says. I am sometimes afraid. This is normal. But the situation for Christians in Iraq has always been unstable. But, he added, it's our mission to live here in this place as Christians. Without faith, I do not have a reason to stay here. But I have faith, so I am here. In nearby Karakosh, which is an Assyrian city, in Iraq, in the Nineveh province, and was previously home to 50,000 Christians, Najib returned to his home to find that ISIS had left one of the bedrooms with a hole big enough for him to stand in. Every wall had writing on it, including the signature of Abu Asma, one of the militants, who had scrawled on one of Najib's walls, he who refuses Islamic State will surely be killed. Many of the homes and churches have been burned inside, ransacked, vandalized or destroyed by bombs and rockets. Najib's house is one of the 124 in Karakosh that have now been repaired. When asked how they decided to begin their repairs, Father George, a Christian leader in Karakosh, said, we decided to restore the city piece by piece so that we wouldn't get isolated homes where a family would live between empty homes. The main thought is to recreate the sense of community. We've repaired the homes, first near the centre of the city, and we now have 20 shops that have opened around them. So what can we do in Worcester? The two obvious but absolutely necessary things are prayer and money to help the Iraqi Christians. Brother Andrew, who founded Open Doors in the 1960s and wrote that incredible story of God's smuggler and then God's smuggler in China, said, if we want to leave an indelible mark on the world, there is no more powerful way than by joining in God's purpose through prayer. There are free prayer notes and leaflets about Open Doors on the table on the side to my right. They're free. Please take them away. And there's a basket if you want to help the Iraqi Christians financially. All the money, I promise you, will be sent to Open Doors. Last year, Open Doors organized a one million, of, one million signatures of a hope petition 
which was presented to the United Nations on December the 11th last year and the House of Commons on December the 13th last year. More than 750,000 people signed that petition. So if any of you did sign that petition, may I say thank you very much for supporting that campaign. The petition read, We call on the government of Britain and the United Nations to ensure that Christians and other minorities enjoy, one, the right to equal citizenship, two, dignified living conditions, and three, a prominent role in the reconciling and rebuilding of society. Father Thabert of Caronles, who signed the petition, said, We need international support. The only way that our future as Christians can be guaranteed is with international support and protection. When at the end of time, I stand before my Lord and Master, and he asks me, what did you do, John, to help the persecuted church? I don't want to say like the parable of the Good Samaritan. I looked on and felt helpless, like the priest and Levite in the parable I don't want to admit I pass by on the other side of the road. I want to say, like the Good Samaritan, I played a small part. I played, prayed, I gave money, and I told others in the West about the persecuted church and their problems. I want to finish by showing you the most inspiring picture that I've seen for a long, long time. This is Palm Sunday, April last year in Caramelez. Sorry, Karakosh it is. And many hundreds of Christians returning home to Karakosh for the first time in two years after being liberated from ISIS by the Iraqi army. On a wall in Karakosh, someone had written, tomorrow will be more beautiful. Despite all their problems, despite all that had happened to them, the civil war Having to flee their homes, they have now returned and they believe tomorrow will be more beautiful. These people believe it. Do I? Do you? And what are we going to do about it? Amen. Thank you very much for listening.